Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so wonderful in how you have not only disclosed your heart to us, but you do it like a billion times for like millions upon millions of people over thousands and thousands of years. And your faithfulness and your mercy, there's, there's no end in sight yet. And because you loved us first, we love you back. So we thank you for the um, story of the prodigal son, which last week uh, Daniel Williams correctly identified as the prodigal or extravagant father. You are extravagant. Your mercy, we, we need it every day. We are hour by hour dependent on you. Today, Lord, please supernaturally open up our hearts and our minds to understand the scriptures and to know your heart and to know that you're a thousand times as good as any father that's ever lived and that you're the father we need and that anyone who has seen the son has seen the father. Please help us to see the son Jesus in our study of the book of Jonah today. And... Um, we just thank you for who you are. You are the greatest. So not to cut things short, but let's uh, start with our benediction. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron. So Aaron, you know, Aaron and Moses were brothers. Uh, Aaron's supposed to be sort of the administrative chief and, uh, I don't know, head pastor. And Aaron's like the, the chief priest, the high priest, Right? So maybe he's kind of the head pastor in a way. I guess they have shared responsibilities. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. So what's in the Lord's heart for his people? It's not curses. So we have a little bit too much self-condemnation and a little bit too much harshness towards each other. And desire for the condemnation of evil people sometimes. We're going to see that fully manifested, like full bore um, in uh, the book of Jonah, who is a picture of us. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, thus you shall curse, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. That means guard you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. So if a flashlight's pointing somewhere, where does it have to be pointing so you see its light? Uh, Daniel? Hey, Daniel, if a flashlight's pointing at you, oh, oh. <laughs> you can't see a flashlight's light clearly unless it's shining right at you. Daniel likes to shine flashlights in my eyes. <laughs> so if the Lord's face is shining upon you, is he ignoring you? Is he shaking his head and just fed up with you? Has he left you? No. The Lord's telling Moses to tell Aaron, like, over and over and over again, like, year in, year out, here is my heart for you and your, and your people. Like, just, just pray my blessing on them. Like, my face is, is towards them. That's you. That's us. That's me. Thank God. The Lord bless you and guard you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his face, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Praise God. So that's, that's how God feels about us day in and day out. 
generation in and generation out. So our message is titled, uh, Knowing the Heart of the Father, from Jonah. Well, Jonah was, uh, he was a prophet, right? He prophesied to uh, the people of Israel and to their kings. Um, he uh, prophesied in his day to, I think, Jeroboam II, as found in 2 Kings, if I have that right, that, uh, that God was going to expand Israel's border during the time of Jonah and that king, and he did. But a couple of other prophets, uh, among them Amos and uh, Hosea, were simultaneously prophesying uh, against the people of Israel. You see, Israel was kind of a mixed bag, and God still blessed them. But God's heart for blessing extended, as we're going to see, far beyond the borders of Israel. And it extends far beyond the borders of me and my family, of this family of families, of the church. It extends to the world. So Jonah's a prophet. Think, uh, think uh, preacher, right? He's, uh, his main job is to, is to teach and preach God's word. And every once in a while, he uh, was given a word from the Lord of what the Lord intended to do even later that hadn't happened yet. Well, as a preacher, one of the things he would have preached on, and I hope he liked this passage, because he should have, is Exodus 34. And it's one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. Moses has just finished, uh, like, okay, so, so Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and the people are worshiping a cow that they made. Who made it? Aaron made it, right? Good, good uh, first day on the job, high priest, okay? Um, and they're worshiping this cow, and they're indulging in like all kinds of immorality and, uh, and revelry. So Moses goes, smashes the, the tablets. If you've seen Charlton Heston's movie, The Ten Commandments, you get a good picture of that. Smashed, and the word of God is broken upon them. And Moses says, just cut some more tablets, bring them up. I'm going to give that word to them again. Ah, oh, that's a good word. He didn't, like, let the lava flow down the smoking mountain and, like, wipe everybody out. Instead, um, he gave them a mediator, Moses. And Moses brought the word of God to them, brought the forgiveness and the grace of God upon them. So this has just happened earlier in the book of Exodus, around, like, chapter 20 and beyond. So then Moses is like, Lord, please don't leave us. And then in Exodus 33, God answers him, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Praise God. He has not abandoned his people back in Exodus, nor will he abandon us. God says, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Isn't that a good word? I know you by name. That wasn't just for Moses. That was for all the people that Moses was interceding for. And like Moses, uh, Jesus, all the people Jesus is interceding for, that's us, praise God. He knows us by name. To not be a number, that he knows my name, is like the special treasure that I, that I keep in my pocket, and it's always with me. And, and Moses' big special treasure, one of them was that God was not going to leave them, leave them as orphans, that he was going to remain as father to them and remain with them. And God says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Whew. And then Moses says, please show me your glory. 
Just imagine Jonah teaching this in like a synagogue in ancient Israel, right? That's what we're getting to. So Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. I am who I am. I am that I am. I be who I be. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The Lord, skipping down in uh, chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So what's the name of the Lord that he's about to tell him, this is my name? It's a description of his person and his personality, his character, and his eternal and changeable attributes. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And so here is the name of our Father in his own words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You can just hear the echo. Steadfast love, steadfast love, steadfast love. And it's echoing through the ages today. And it's for us. On whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, God has told him like 10 to 12 times now that he has, in like every line of this, the favor of God is upon him and on this people if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and, and take us for your inheritance. Paul speaks of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's another treasure I keep close to my heart, that we are what God wanted and what God gets. God wanted his eternal glory. And that is all wrapped up in because he has put his name on us. Because ever since the days of Aaron and before, um, that mediator from God has been putting God's name on us. And that's, we see it also in Revelation when it says his name will be on our foreheads. That doesn't mean like you're going to get like an ink stamp like when you go to the fair or something on the internet, like, no, like, like, it's the opposite of the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is, I've got, I belong to Satan written all over me. It's like on my own right hand, you know, it's not a computer chip, it's, it's, it's written all over you. But the mark of Christ, the name of the Lord that was put on the people of God is figuratively speaking, if this is a word picture, God's name is written all over us. It's like, it's like if I'm a house, um, as in the Passover, the blood of Christ was applied to the doorposts, like hands and head, like the blood of Christ has been, has anointed me so that 
All of my sin is forgiven. He's put his mercy, he's put his compassion, he's even put his glory on you and me. And that is what the Lord would say to us today. And that's what the Lord wanted to say to Jonah and to all of the people who read Jonah and to our friends who we will meet in heaven, the Ninevites. Right up there, hopefully, with King Nebuchadnezzar, who was about as bad as the Ninevites as we have studied, you know, bulldozing people's houses and tearing people's arms off and throwing people to lions and all these things. And guess what? That's the kind of person God delights to save. Praise the Lord. Amen? So now in the season of Advent, we, uh, we're reading Luke. <clears throat> and after 400 years of, of silence or near silence where there's no, uh, there's no vision given to any prophet, uh, now we come to the, um, the, the time of Christ's incarnation or, or being born as a, as a, into flesh and blood. And, and there are angels announcing it from heaven. And God's like sending his holy army of these like, you know, Navy SEAL angels. I always think of angels as like mighty warriors. And like, you know, they're like on fire or shining with the glory of God because they've been so close to God that they're glowing with the light that came out from him, just like Moses' face shown after he spoke with the Lord. And that's like a real thing. And so here are these angels and they just appear in the sky. And who do they go to? They go to like the kings and the dignified people and the real holy people, the people who like have recently like showered or changed their clothes or something. Nope. They go to shepherds, shepherds out there in the sheep? Are they like, got a good reputation? They got the day job? They're high rolling? No. The shepherds, they're there day and night because like being a shepherd is not a, not a glorious job, although a noble calling. And so God chooses these shepherds, and I think of myself as like one of these sheep or one of these shepherds who, uh, who like not, not like the most likely candidate for God to love and call and raise up um, but, like me, he spoke first to these shepherds. And what did he say has been in his heart all these years of silence toward the people of God and the people whom he will call, even the Gentiles, even the people outside these walls? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So for all these centuries, actually more than 2,000 years, uh, actually it's been a little less than 2,000 years from the time of Moses. So uh, for over 1,000 years, what's, what God has been treasuring in his heart towards his people is peace. Like, like not death and destruction and lightning bolts and swords and judgment, peace. God's been storing up all this in his heart toward us all these years. Peace and, and favor, or he's pleased with us. And so often, something inside us keeps us from accepting the favor of God. And so often, we've maybe had a couple of encounters with God where, where he blew us away and he forgave us our sins. We came to the altar, we, we found him in that secret place in, in prayer, and, and we confessed all our sins to him, and we knew the, the special and cleansing, washing 
water of the Spirit and blood of Christ flowed over us, the water and the blood, and we were born again like Jonah, and we were, we were saved from our sins. And then, like Jonah, we become kind of a mixed bag. So without further ado, let's look at Jonah and what's in Jonah's heart. Was it, was it um, favor and peace and blessing? Or was it favor and peace and blessing to me, my family, everybody on this side of the border, and on that side of the border, send them straight to hell on the express train. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone. Yes, that's what was in Jonah's heart. Um, He was missing the heart of God. Unless we walk away from our study of Jonah with those kinds of things in our heart towards one another and towards those outside the borders of these walls or the walls of our family, let's, let's listen carefully to the Lord's heart. The heart of our Father as revealed all through these scriptures we have read and so clearly and wonderfully in Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It's like when uh, Abel's blood was crying out for vengeance to God after Cain killed him. And God heard it. God saw and God knew when the Israelites were oppressed in the land of Egypt for 400 years. God saw their suffering and God knew. And he sees your suffering and he knows. And here are these evil people. So let's reveal. Last time we talked about Jonah, we talked about the Assyrians. See, we had a map. Here's the Middle East, right? So you got uh, Africa and Europe and Asia. And the Middle East is a bunch of countries in the middle. And here's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Here's Iran and Iraq and Turkey. And here's Syria, part of which overlapped the ancient Assyrian Empire, Turkey and Syria. Although they kind of, during the days of Saul and David and Solomon, they were conquering the known world or, or that, that large chunk of the Middle East, right? And, and then right down here is Israel, right on the border of the Mediterranean Sea, you got Lebanon to the north, and then beyond that, Damascus, and then, and then the Assyrians, threatening, foreboding. Down there you've got Egypt, right? So you've got the map. So here's little Israel. It's just a little guy. And there's Jonah, just a little preacher, and he's preached from some of these passages we went over this morning, although Luke hadn't been written. And he knows all about the Assyrians. He's heard their reputation because they were terrifying to the peoples around them from several generations before he was born. Okay, so shout out, what do we know about the Assyrians? Just shout it out and I'll repeat it after you so everybody can hear. They're murderers. What else? They tortured people. One of their kings was the first librarian ever. Very good. So they tortured, th- so they, uh, historians think they invented this early form of crucifixion. They would impale people, but they wouldn't kill them first. They'd do it and then they'd let them die up there so everybody could watch. There was something like very satanic about how they delighted in this torture and this death. In fact, they, uh, they, they advanced forms of torture and cruelty by their, they had great wisdom, administrative skill. They invented many of the things that, uh, that the Roman Empire used, um, combat formations, how to supply your troops, 
uh, and keep them supplied so you could have a bigger army on the field longer. Uh, they invented these siege engines and war machines so that even if they came against a city with big high walls, which before the time of the Assyrians was, if you had a big city with big walls, like, how tall is a guy? Like, you know, maybe you could shoot an arrow, but you can't really take the city unless God makes the walls fall down for you, okay? Um, or they leave the gates open and, uh, and then your, your ambush runs in and burns the city or something while their army is outside. You know, that happened with the Israelites. God gave them into their hands. But, so the Assyrians had some pretty advanced technology, some, some discipline and skill in warfare, uh, some technology, and they were cruel. So the two main things we looked at the Assyrians uh, as being characterized by was their vicious cruelty, which became the hallmark of the Roman Empire going through cities and decimating them. You know, they'd count off by Dessa. They count one, two, three, four, Dessa. All right, you, crucified. One, two, three, four, five, six, ten, crucified. And then they just line the, line the roads outside the cities with people they were crucifying. And into that culture, Christ was born. And into this culture, Jonah, uh, a forerunner and a foreshadowing prophetic figure of who Christ was going to become or was going to be, uh, was born. Jonah knew everything we know about the Assyrians and their cruel reputation, but he knew it um, more like the back of his hand than reading it from history books. And uh, the Assyrians were threatening uh, his kingdom, Israel. And Hosea had just finished prophesying that the Assyrians were going to be God's judge, were going to come and conquer Israel. How do you think Jonah liked that? So he's a preacher, and he's preaching, you know, and he's probably thinking in the back of his mind, like, God save Israel, God be gracious to us, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you, be gracious, let his face shine upon you. And those guys who we always knew are way beyond any hope of salvation, um, God smite them. God make them like Sodom and Gomorrah. I think that's the kind of prayers he prayed. I think he intimately knew Psalm 139. Remember when we went over that? Psalm 139? Let's just flip there. I think he loves Psalm 139. I love Psalm 139. It starts out, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in. That is, you keep me, you guard me, like that blessing from Aaron. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? That's like a, a thoughtful meditation, like I can't Get away from God. Isn't that just what Moses asked for? Like, oh Lord, if you do not go up with us, like, like we can't go up. Like we can't go up out of Egypt into the promised land if you're not with us. Like please go with us. And Moses says, this very thing I will do. And in his covenant, steadfast, chesed, faithful love to the generations that came after them, right up here through the writer of Psalm 139, our, our guy David. He was with them. And David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Think about that, because we're going to get there in Jonah. So what's Sheol? It's like, 
It, it means like the pit or the grave. Uh, uh, hell isn't quite the right synonym or translation. It's more like it's more like the grave. Like everybody goes to Sheol. Everybody dies. So if I die, like you're there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you're there. If I'm buried in the ground, if I fall overboard and I'm lost at sea and I'm buried under the waves, nobody ever sees me again, you're there. Jonah had read this and had probably preached on it. If I take the wings of the morning, that's I think of like the sunrise rising in the east and quickly spreading to the west. If I could like fly, I think he's saying. If I could fly and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, because when you live on land and you're close to the shore and you look out over the water, you can only see like, you know, what's the horizon? Like 15 miles if you stand, you know, so many feet tall, you can, because the earth curves, you can see about 15 miles. You can't see any farther than that. But what if you're up on a mountain? If you're up on a mountain, maybe you can see 40 miles or something until the air is too thick to see through it. But if you're looking out over the sea, you can only see so far. And, and he's like, the, the sea is like this seemingly infinite thing if you ever grew up on the shore or, or went to the shore. You look out over it and you can't see the end of it. And David prays, I could like fly over the water indefinitely and just dwell as far as I could get. And even there, your right hand would hold me fast. Skip down to verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, that's like the Assyrians, depart from me. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I feel like in Jonah's preaching, if he preached this from this psalm, he probably knew well, even if I sail in a ship as far as I could get, I couldn't get away from you. I think he knew that by heart. And I think he knew, I hate those guys with complete hatred, those, those shedders of blood, those violent people, just like the Assyrians of our day. And then verse 23, I, I kind of wonder, I think he didn't spend enough time on verses 23 and 24. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's like, See if I'm full of like murderous intent in my heart. If so, take it out of me. And that is the call on us today. A call to ask God to search our hearts and get past where Jonah got by the end of the book of Jonah and get to where I think he got after he had finished going through these experiences. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, go up to Nineveh. And you're supposed to think, ugh, Nineveh, get him, fire and brimstone. You're supposed to be praying these thoughts. I, I wonder if Jonah taught his disciples to pray like that against the Assyrians. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice that his prayer life at this point wasn't, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, everywhere. Your will be done by me right now. That wasn't his prayer life, but the call of God on us is to pray like Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And Jonah wasn't there yet. He was a little bit of a mixed bag like the rest of his people. So instead of, okay, Lord, I'll go preach against them and I hope you get them. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah 
probably understood from Hosea's prophecy that if the people of Nineveh, the, you know, uh, this great city of the Assyrian Empire that kind of represented the whole, the whole empire, he probably knew from Hosea's prophecy that, that Assyria was going to come and wipe out Israel because Israel wasn't just a mixed bag. It was a little bit worse than that by this time. And God's judgment meter was rising and he was preparing to pour out wrath upon them. Jonah probably knew that if he went to Nineveh and if the people of Nineveh repented and if the Assyrian nation uh, broadly fasted and prayed for repentance, he probably understood that this would mean the destruction of his people. So, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, that's just a city on the coast, and found a ship going to Tarshish. I read a thing saying, where is Tarshish? And it suggested somewhere like north, uh, here's little Israel. He could have sailed up here and then walked all the way over to what's modern day uh, Mosul, Mos- Mosul, is that right, in Iraq. It's a long, long walk to Nineveh, but he could have sailed on a ship to get up there. Uh, Historians don't know where Tarshish is. They think it might have been there, but they also think it might have been like out here, like, like closer to like Italy and Spain and those, city, those countries, like all the way on the far side of the sea, Psalm 139. And Jonah knows he can't flee from the presence of the Lord, but he buys a ticket and he goes down and he's like, you know, one flees one way, one way. And, uh, and he gets on the ship and he tells these sailors, you know, they're like, what you doing? And they're like, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And they're like, all right. <laughs> your Lord, your, your idol God, your, your little God must be like a pretty bad dude or you must have done something pretty bad, you know? And, uh, and God, God isn't about to let him get away that quickly. Jonah's in this ship and the, the ship is full of sailors and cargo and God sends a mighty wind and, the, and it kicks up the waves and the waves are so powerful that they're smashing against the side of the ship and the ship is threatening to break up. And they're like, we got to get out of here. And they row even harder, but the storm picks up and they start throwing away their cargo overboard so that the water that's coming over the sides doesn't make them too heavy and they sink and they have to get over the next wave and the next one and they're trying to row to get back to land and it's not working. And, and the captain comes down and finds Jonah like deep in the belly of the ship and what's he doing? He's snoozing. And he's like, what are you doing sleeping at a time like this? Wake up, call out to your God. We're all calling out to our gods. The people in this ship are just idol worshipers like all the Ninevites. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know anything about how the world really works. That is that the Lord is the Lord of the land and the sea. And that in like a reversal of what Jesus did with his disciples in the boat, when he gets up and he says, peace be still. And this mighty storm that was going to sink the disciples' boat on the Sea of Galilee, just the waves are quiet. It's perfectly calm. Well, here's Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, back in Jonah's day, seated on his throne in heaven, the Father, the Spirit, the Son, reigning, and he sends this sea. He sends this wind that kicks up the waves, and the ship is threatening to break up, and, and they're like, well, let's figure out whose fault it is, you know? And so they get out the dice, they get out the lots and they cast them and they're like, okay, number off, you know, one, two, three, you're Jonah, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, and they, that's going to be about uh, seven pairs of dice. So they roll and all of them are zeros except for number three. Like, like God supernaturally changed their little, their lot casting thing and made it fall on number three. And they all look at Jonah and they all get it. They get that God like, 
controls the roll of the dice. God controls the casting of the lots. And they all look at Jonah and they're like, what have you done? But he had already told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And they're like, what's your job? What people are you from? Like, what, what the deal is? And Jonah's like, I was wrong. I repent, O oh Lord. And he gets down on his knees and he worships the Lord and he confesses his sins and he says, I was wrong. You saved me. I will go to this people that I hate, that is in enmity against you, and I'll preach to them, and, and hopefully you save them like you save me. Uh-uh. Jonah's a little bit of a mixed bag in his heart. He, the heart of the Father, the Christ had not been born in him very fully. He was not mature, for maturity is to be redemptive in every situation. Maturity is to have the heart of the Father in you towards your wife, towards your husband towards your kids, towards your mother-in-law, towards your uh, grandmother and, and your boss, towards your coworkers, especially your coworkers, towards your housemates, to be redemptive in every situation. And so our prayer life is uh, learning from the book of Jonah to repent and to ask that the heart of Christ, that Christ brings the heart of our Father to us and that Christ is formed in us so that we grow up until we're like a fully grown or fully mature person. That is, that the heart of the Father is born in us and that, and that these things guide the course of how we treat each other in our relationships and how we think about each other and how we forgive those who sin against us the worst. So, so Jonah like Christ who was to come after him, thinks, Jonah was a little off base. He's like, well, I'd rather die than see the Ninevites restored. So I did it. It was my fault. Just throw me overboard and you'll be rid of me. Good solution, Jonah. You're such a great preacher. And the men are like, oh, like, no. And they row harder to get to land and it doesn't work. And they're like, all right, all right, all right. We're going to save our own skin at the cost of your life. Or rather, Jonah gives up his life to save these Gentile people like Christ. So we see a foreshadowing of the Christ who is coming into the world in Jonah. Because God is not only Lord of land and sea, he's Lord of all the nations. He's Lord of the church and not the church, the two countries in the world, because there are only really two nations in the world. There are only really two kingdoms. There's the people of God spread out through the whole world. And then there's everybody else who's not yet the people of God. But God is coming. And like the Ninevites, God's going to get you. God is going to convert the hearts of his enemies and Christ will be born in them. And this is the trend of history. Well, Jonah hadn't yet had this matured in him. And so he offers himself a sacrifice that the rest of the people, um, the rest of these idol-worshiping Gentiles could be saved because he knew that the sea would become still. And they pray like, oh Lord, don't hold us accountable for murdering this man, like killing this guy, but we know that this is from you and we don't see any other way to be saved except to trust that if this guy takes the judgment that's over all of us, that we will then be saved. Does that sound like Christ? You have to see Christ when you read the Old Testament. All of it. Especially, as Daniel brought out last week, that was the best sermon on how to see Christ in Esther that I've ever heard, like by far. Well, I don't think I'd ever heard one before, but it like blew my mind. Thank you for that. Go back and listen to it. It was very good. Um, 
So they throw Jonah overboard and think from the eyes of the sailors. You know the rest of the story, but think from the eyes of the sailors. Here's this guy. You know, you're a sailor, you've worked on the ship, and you know if you go overboard, you have like so many seconds or moments or maybe minutes if the sea's pretty calm and it's not and the water's not cold and there are no sharks in the water for the ship to, you know, guys to pull the ropes and turn the sails and start turning the ship around and come back and get you. Or maybe they have a little lifeboat, hopefully, you know, maybe a couple guys could jump in there and row and get you. But you can't swim forever. I don't think Jonah did any swimming. I think he slipped beneath the waves that fast. Uh, he probably wasn't a mariner. He was probably a landlubber like some of us. He... So imagine being one of these sailors. You know what the sea does to people who fall in and you throw this guy to his death and you know it's going to be your salvation. And he slips, he disappears under the waves and immediately the sea becomes calm. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in these highest, the highest. These guys fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, to fear him. And they realized they had become the recipients of his love and of his salvation, and they worshiped him. And so these Gentiles, these outsiders were saved. That is the beginning. That's like a foreshadowing of what God's going to do on a massive scale in the rest of Jonah's life. And so that's the end of the story of Jonah as far as the sailors were concerned. Maybe they heard the rest of it, but as far as they're concerned, they threw this guy to his death. They, they kind of crucified him, and, and instantly they were all saved, and they were healed from the judgment in the storm. Did Jonah come up out of the water again? No. He disappeared, and they sailed or rowed to wherever they were going. But for Jonah, the story wasn't over because God doesn't accept, I'd rather die than obey you from Christians very often as every one of us can attest to because none of us have, all of us have harbored in our heart, my will be done. Like your kingdom come wherever, but not as completely here. I'm going to do my will, right? But we have to get to, oh God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need you to, I need you to help me to pray your kingdom come everywhere in whatever way you want, however you want, no qualifications. You're the God and I'm, I'm your son or daughter and, and your will be done in me right now. And that needs to become our daily prayer life and that needed to become Jonah's and God was gonna stick with him to sanctify him and to accomplish his greater purposes for those who were about to become the people of God. And so God appoints this fish. And so supernaturally, he gets this deep sea or shallow water, whatever, this, this sea creature, and it comes up and it eats him. Be Jonah real quick. Okay, you just got thrown overboard. You had that roller coaster feeling of falling as, as the hands of the men who threw you into the raging sea released you, and for a moment, you're flying through the air, and then you hit the water. It's probably cold. You probably didn't have time to get a good breath. You probably swallowed some water. Now you're underwater. You're doing some of this, and, and you already know you're a goner, and you're as good as dead. Jonah spent the next three days dead, like a dead man, this, this fish came up, and even though he'd been buried under the surface, buried underwater like being buried underground, this fish comes up, engulfs him, 
And he's, God sustains his life even though he's inside an animal that's like swimming underwater. How did he do that? God knows. It was no problem for God, trust me. So Jonah cries out during these three days. He cries out to the Lord out of his distress. And God answers him. He says, out of the belly of Sheol, out of, like, I, I'm in the grave. I've already been buried. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He recognizes it was God who appointed these men to throw him in the water. He gets that God is sovereign over all these things. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Because the mountain goes down into the water, but it keeps going down and down to the bottom of the seafloor. And Jonah's down here. My brother and I used to have seaweed fights. And, uh, you know, boys can be pretty nasty. Although to us, it was only part nastiness and part, you know, I love you, so I threw this water seaweed. So seaweed is like gooey or slimy or, or squishy. And sometimes it smells really bad. Like, have you ever smelled something kind of rotting on the beach. So, so seaweed can smell okay, and it can also smell pretty bad. And so we used to get these goopy hands of like handfuls of algae and seaweed, and we would have, you know, my brother would be like throwing a pine cone at me, and I'd really get him. I'd be crouching down there in the tall grass with my wad of seaweed, and I'd chuck it at him all floppy and sloppy and wet with salt water and like this kind of nasty mud that smells like, like waste. And uh, and I'd get him like right in the side of the face. And that seaweed would wrap around the, his head. And I guarantee you, this is one of the, the lesser pleasant experiences, you know, that uh, one might experience. And this is where Jonah is. And he's got this seaweed wrapped around his head. And the bars are closed upon him forever, he says. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, the Ninevites, my shipmates, forsake their hope of steadfast love. And surely Jonah had, or so he thought, forsaken his hope of steadfast love. But the Lord wasn't done with him yet. He said, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Like it's dark down there. He's hungry and he's thirsty and there's seaweed wrapped around his face and he's making these vows to the Lord and he's like, if you get me out of here, I'll do anything. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And like Christ was buried Friday, part of Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday, Sunday morning for those three days, like Christ, Jonah was dead. He was a dead man. And at the word of the Lord, he re-entered the land of the living. This is a wonderful, like, Christological book. We see that when Jesus says, as the Pharisees are arguing with him, they're like, give us a sign, like, prove it, prophet. You know, like, you do a little miracles. We want a sign. We want, like, you to prove to us chapter and verse from the Bible that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But you know, like raising dead people and like making blind eyes see, these things aren't enough for them. So like, what are they going to get when he does a sign? They want him to do something that's like prophesied in the scriptures of the Christ. Had they read Jonah? Yeah. Did they get Jonah? No. 
We get Jonah because we can only understand Jonah having known Christ personally. And looking back, we see Christ is written all over the pages of Jonah. Jonah, like Christ, as Greg said, preached a message of repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Skipping down. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And that's what happened when Christ came. These Israelites living in a land of darkness, you know, especially in Galilee. They called it Galilee of the Gentiles because it was, you know, like as Gentile as it was Jewish, if not more, maybe. And, uh, and like, the, like many of the Galileans and the people of the surrounded community and Judeans, all the Israelites here, when, when Jonah preached, Gen- the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles and they were convicted of their sin, sin that had been embodied in their culture and their personality for generations. And in a three-day fast, God delivered them and took away his judgment. It's the same thing that happened when Christ was preached to us. So in this argument with the Pharisees in Matthew 12, I think, the Pharisees are like, give us a sign. And he's like, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. In short, the message of Jonah finds its culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God that came at the advent of Jesus includes Jews and Gentiles and will stretch to the ends of the earth. So both Jonah and Christ were engaged in a mission that results in deliverance for repentant Gentiles, but Hosea's prophecy was fulfilled, but destruction for wicked Israelites and Jews. Both offered their lives as a substitutionary sacrifice in order to save others. And we said both preached a message of repentance. The glory of the Lord is to reveal Christ, to reveal his heart through these Old Testament books we've been studying. And to cause us to cause Christ to be born in our hearts through faith and through careful study of the scripture. So the best way to study the scripture or the starting point is to just take a book like Jonah and read it, then the next day read it, the next day read it, the next day read it, and cry out to God to convict you of sin and to open your eyes to understand the scriptures. And bit by bit we see Christ and like God revealing his heart to Moses and again the angels revealing God's heart of peace and goodwill toward all on whom his favor rests, becomes born in our hearts, and our personalities and our character are transformed at the supernatural work of God. Could the Ninevites have been saved? Jonah reasoned no. Can our hearts be converted, every one of our hearts? Without exception, none of us is beyond the sanctifying and saving work of God to cause what's in the heart of the Father, what's in the heart of our Father, to become our heart. And that must become manifest in our relationships with one another, or else we have never known him. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you harbored in your heart for generations while the Assyrians be heaped up sin and violence and wickedness, that you harbored in your heart towards even them this plan that when they believed in the word of the Lord and when they repented of their evil ways, you had premeditated to relent of the disaster that you intended to do to them and you did not do it. Oh Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come on our congregation that is the spirit of repentance, that times of refreshing may come from the Holy Spirit. Amen.